You're listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number 320. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another podcast here on the Outdoor Station. After two glorious bank holiday weekends, one after the other, in fantastic weather, and obviously with the royal wedding as well feeling particularly patriotic uh, and also very grateful to be in uh, in such a beautiful country because uh, the weather has obviously encouraged everything to suddenly sprout and um, the, the outdoors generally is looking particularly opulent at the moment. And I hope you've been one of the many people that have uh, got out and about these last couple of weeks and really enjoyed the sunshine, the peace, the quiet and the beauty that is good old blighty at its best. Over the years, we've had uh, various contributors uh, offer us material and provide material which we've included in the in the podcast. Andy Howell, of course, um, Beth, our daughter, uh, and a few other people as well. And this particular podcast uh, is someone new, someone uh, well new to uh, new to perhaps our listeners, uh, but we're, we've been aware of uh, David for some time. Uh, David Linton uh, is an outdoor blogger. Uh, and his blog site is selfpowered.blogspot.com, and um, he also is a, a part-time broadcaster as well. And so he sent us some material which was recently broadcast at the beginning of the year on Resonance FM, which is a small station, I think, based in London, uh, and probably the contents of which was missed by, by most of us. So he suggested that our listeners might be interested in the contents, and uh, having listened to it, I think they certainly will be. Now, I'm going to let the the story unfold, but uh, just a brief bit of introduction. David got together uh, Alan Sloman and Andy Hal, two uh, well-known uh, outdoor bloggers as well, to discuss uh, land management, uh, conservation, stewardship, etc., etc., and the current topic of the moment, wind farms. So it makes for some very, very interesting listening. Uh, in particular for people like ourselves who are about to go and do the uh, TGO Challenge, the walk across Scotland from the west to east coast, which is uh, second and third week of May for a couple of weeks, uh, as we will be walking through the landscape that these guys talk about with um, in detail and with great passion. Uh, and certainly uh, it'll, uh, it'll make you think about some of the areas that we go through which are under development for wind farms. Uh, and exactly what impact it will make on the outdoors, on the landscape, and also our impression of the of the outdoors as well. So, uh, without further ado, uh, let us uh, let David do the introductions and let it unfold, and enjoy the discussions. Good afternoon. You're listening to Self Powered on Resonance FM. Um, we're here to talk about conservation stewardship. Land and energy management to draw out some of the themes that have been expressed so well, I think, in the, on the internet over the last few months, but perhaps have been sadly missing from the public debate, certainly mainstream press, um, at least until the last few weeks with the forestry campaign. Uh, we'll get to that in a while, but first, let's talk about wind energy. So, Alan, I know you're very involved in, um, in a... a, a something at the moment now talk to me about the monolia tell us about the monolia and, and what it, what's all this about dunmaglass talk to, talk to us about that well, well first of all you ought to know where the monolia are they're they're a huge area of wild land it's the it's the gray hills and they're to the northwest of the a9 on the on its way to aviemore uh, so if you think if you're on the train trundling up to Aviemore or on the, in your car going up to Aviemore for the Cairngorms, on your right you have the Cairngorms and on your left you have this massive area of hills and they're about between 2,500 and 3,000 feet up. Big wild moorland. I suppose for the English listener I suppose they're more akin to the northern Pennines but they're just on a much bigger scale. It's like the Pennines on steroids. Mm-hmm. It's um, an area that's really huge and has no road crossing, no road crossings going through it. Uh, some tracks go into it, and it's owned by a, a number of uh, probably about fifteen to twenty estates. But it's an area because there's no land, there's no road crossing it. It's, a, it's an area of massively wild land, and for years and years, it's been not particularly well trampled by hillwalkers because there aren't many Corbett's and Munro's apart from down in the southwestern corner. But there are, it's mainly just wild hills. And, and what you do get up there, 
uh, with the stewardship of some of the estates, are lots and lots of golden eagles. Um, you get buzzards. You get all sorts of wild creatures that when you're sort of lying on your back next to the bank of a stream and you're looking up you can just see these things soar going right across the valley at wow, an amazing, amazing speed and it's a fantastic area of wild land the trouble is they want to build power stations all over it and the power stations are these windmills and these windmills are absolutely huge about 12 13 years ago they built one on the Dunmaglass estate, just one windmill. And we were walking across Scotland on the TGO Challenge and we looked at this thing and there was a massive Liebherr um, crane lifting this thing into place. But first of all, they had to build this huge haul road to get the turbine, the tower and the blades and the generator itself and the crane all the way to the top of the hill. And they built this bulldozed track all the way to the top. And we looked at this and thought, blimey, you know, that's, that's really destroying the area. And that was one turbine. And we looked at that thinking, I wonder what if that's the thin end of the wedge. And it's proved to be. How long ago was that, just out of interest? That was, I think that was about seven, uh, 98, that was. OK. And so just 12, 13 years ago. Yeah. yeah. So the Monolia are just fabulous. And in fact, there's one estate... Uh, the Coignafern estate, which is owned by um, a, philanthrop- a philanthropist, uh, Sigrid Rousing, who is a sort of rather special lady who, who is the heiress to some of the Tetrapak fortune. Mm-hmm. And she's spent a huge amount of time and money sort of re- re-energising her estate to make it more suitable for uh, eagles and raptors. And she spent a lot of money sort of building nests and getting her keepers to make the land um, viable again for these, for these wild creatures. And very ne- right next door to her now, she's got these wind turbines now, which are going to smash these birds to pieces. Okay, so this this is this a uh, this is a relatively new decision. This this uh, and that's the Dunmaglass estate that you're talking about. Is that right? Yes, it is. Um, okay. They went for planning about five five or six years ago. Um, unfortunately, the outdoor bloggers and things weren't weren't around then really. And it's so relatively the, new. It's a relatively it? new phenomenon. I think mm. Andy was the first one of the first outdoor bloggers, and. Had had we all been around at the time, there would have been an absolute outcry. And the only people at the time making any fuss were the John Muir Trust and the Mountaineering Council of Scotland and mm-hmm. Sigrid Rousing herself. But, of course, they didn't have the publicity. They didn't have people out there banging the table and saying, look, this is, this is wrong, this, is not, this shouldn't happen. And so the energy companies have just cleaned up because they've just bulldozed straight through and they've got planning permission from and, and they just walked over the rights of walkers and and adjacent estate owners. Right, and and, and Andy, you've I know that you've walked in this area as well quite mm. extensively, as well yeah. as a lot of the people that you're in contact with through your blog. Tell us about your experience with the Monolia. Um, I ran there for the first time about three years ago, and um, was just knocked out about it. It's it doesn't have the highest hills, as uh, Alan said, but it is a very special place. And you walk along the main ridge of the Monolia, you have the Cairngorms on one side. On the other side, you can see all the way back to uh, the hills of the northwest. And then you suddenly realise, actually, if I'm sitting on those hills and the wind farm is here, you'll be able to see it. But because it's a, because it's such an unspoiled area, um, as Alan said, the wildlife is superb. The experience of wandering through it is something that's really quite unique. And there's a real irony of some of these places, which we'll talk about later, in that if a road ran along the top of this ridge, you would never... You would have such a big outcry because the view is so special. But because there is no road there, you know, and it's only a few peculiar people like Alan Mee who wander across it, of course, nobody knows that it's there. And that brings us back to the whole principle of how you protect the notion of wild land Mm. for wild land's sake, which I know we're going to come to later. Mm. But it is a very special area, and it has... Two of the most fabulous river valleys running through it, the Findorn and the Donain, I think it is. Donain, yeah. Donain, thank you, Alan. Um, <laughs> which are incredibly special places, and, and the Findorn particularly has all kinds of resonance for all kinds of uh, people and uh, kind of alternative communities, but it's a very, very special place. And, you know, to, to, to sit there 
in your little tent in the evening watching the sun go down over the Findorn with the, the light bouncing off the water and the pebbles with the lovely golden heather floating all around you. It's just one of life's great experiences. Fantastic. Now, um, I don't know, I mean, aren't we being a little bit hasty here? I mean, there's, there's going to be an argument, the mainstream argument is, of course, that, you know, wind turbines, wind farms... Um, are, you know, it's a great push forward. It's the green revolution all over again. So, so I mean, what, what's the story with, with, uh, with these turbines? Sure, do they produce viable green energy? What's, what's happening with them? Well, the, first of all, they do produce green energy, and there's no doubt that in Britain, as in everywhere else, we need to minimise our uh, consumption of electricity, particularly that that's derived from fossil fuels. So they work, they generate electricity. The downside, of course, is that you have to store it. Um, and um, anybody who knows North Wales, for example, who knows the Snowdonia area, will know of the big power station near Clamberis. That was built in another age to deal with the... Um, production of nuclear power that coming down the northwest coast. So in a sense, it's a, it's, a, it's a power station that pumps water from the bottom to the top, puts it back down again. So it's a big storage battery, in a sense. Um, you'll need, you know, you'll need that kind of stuff uh, for wind energy. But of course, wind also has this downtime as well. So, you know, you can get into very technical arguments about actually how efficient it is, how effective it is. Um, it obviously has a place in Britain's um, map of, uh, or provision for renewable energy. Um, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a relatively cheap option. So, for example, you know, we have massive potential for wind power that's not been exploited. Um, presumably because it's a much more technical, much more expensive operation. And I know Alan's got some views about actually where the commercial benefit comes from that. So it has its place in the mix of things. Um, it's not a panacea. It's not the answer to everything. And, of course, beyond that, um, we would argue there needs to be real sensitivity about how and where you place wind turbines. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, over to you, Alan. Any thoughts on, on that? Well... I, I, I differ from Andy there slightly because when you take a look at the economics of building um, a, power st a wind power station, because they're not wind farms, you don't farm wind, these things hmm. are power stations yes, and, and we're industrialising the, the wild places to, to, to make power. And the way they're funded is that the government has said, look, well, and the Europeans have said, well, you know, sitting, sitting as you are in the northwest corner of Europe, it's very windy up there. You've got all these winds ripping across the Atlantic, and so it's an ideal place for wind power. And we've all agreed targets with the European community and the governments, the British government's agreed targets, and the Scottish government has even said, well, we can better that, we can do much better than that. We can do two or three times the European targets. But the money to build these things, to, to, to actually, well, not to build them, but to subsidise the electricity is coming from the end user, the, the customer, that you and me in our homes, we're paying a surcharge in order for these... Elect so, so that power companies can buy a certain amount of electricity that they have signed up to, to buy from wind companies. And so what that means is our electricity prices are artificially jacked up in order to make these uh, wind power stations um, economic... When you actually take a look, at, there's the next argument. I, mean, I don't think they are economic because when the wind isn't blowing, I mean, the, the wind industry likes to say that they're almost approaching 30% productive. But when you take a look at the, uh, the figures for the last three or four years, you actually find that the figures are actually nearer 20%. So there's a whole load of misinformation which is bandied about by the wind energy companies because it's in their interest too, because they've got shareholders that they want to, they want to convince is a good idea to build these things. Um, when you take a look at the carbon footprint, uh, they all say, well, green energy is great, but by the time you take a look at building the, the haul roads, building the turbines, it's, you, I mean... You get very little energy back for the first five years in the, in, the, in the wind farm's life. And so for the first five years, you're wasting your time. The, and these wind companies also say that these turbines have a life of 25 years. Well, that's actually not proving to be the case either. It's near 18 or 19 years. And so the economics are patchy, to say the least. And we've been fed a whole load of 
misinformation by the wind industry because it's in their interest to make sure that they can get more and more of these things. They go to the... How they do it is they go to, the first of all, the landowners, because it's very easy to pick off a landowner, because you can say to him, well, Mr Hayward, at Dunmer Glass, for instance, if I, over the next 25 years, give you £9 million, can I, can I put some windmills on, on your land? And, and don't worry, in 25 years' time, we'll take them away. So you've only got them for 25 years, but here's £9 million. Now, who in their right mind, as a landowner, is going to turn, turn £9 million down? Not many people. all about the great outdoors. Do we know the exact figure, Andy? Do we know the figure that, that, that there's, been, that there's this figure of nine million? I don't, uh, is, is that the figure? Alan, yeah. Alan's more likely to know that. But, of That's course, the significance of that is that this land, particularly in a lot of is Scotland, really doesn't have much of a utility value. You know, yeah. it's, it's your big estates that are maybe used for, for uh, deer maybe a bit of shooting and of course somebody comes along and suddenly offers somebody um, who's got this massive piece of land with not a great deal of utility value aha he has a you know a few million quid for windmills and and of course they're going to go for it one of the points i wanted to to just come back to alan mentioned he's quite right is the government's renewable energy targets because it's quite likely we're going to miss those in the uk Mm. and I, i think it's probably because we haven't had a real proper public strategy for for renewable energy across the board, and we haven't had a public debate about it. And this is, I think, likely to put more pressure onto wind energy as, as we get to sort of panic about how we meet these national renewable targets. So we're not really doing very well. We're putting all our eggs in one basket, which, you know, if, it's, if you're talking about massive wind farms out in the sea, uh, maybe one thing. Um, but uh, it is very, very patchy. And uh, our reliance on wind to date is not really delivering the goods that perhaps it should do. And of course, there's the other thing, of course, where, where when the wind... Like, we've just had an incredibly cold spell this winter and, and in the last winter. And when, when, you've got, when it's really, really cold, I mean, we have a great big high pressure sitting over the UK. And when high pressure is sitting over us, there's no wind. And what we found was that the nuclear plants were having to go like crazy to sort of... Compensate, compensate yeah, for the sure. lack of wind. So with the coal and gas plants, and so whenever you build one of these um, wind, fact, no, well not, not wind factories, they're power, wind power stations. You've got to put in backup for it because you know that there's going to be a time when they're just not producing anything. So actually, you know, what are you achieving? What are you actually achieving? You, you're, you're saying that some of the time we're going to make these wind turbines work. But for the rest of the time, 70%, 75% of the time, they're not going to work. And so you think, well, what a waste of effort, what a waste of time. And Andy was right. He's talking about um, the, the value that we place on wild land. It's very, very difficult to do that. Uh, there was a study a little while ago by one, one of the Scottish universities, I can't remember the name of it, um, that said what the value of tourism was to the, to the highland economy. And it was massive. It was, from memory, I think it was something like 150 million to the Highland economy every year. And that's bed and breakfasts, that's hotels. You've only got to look back at 2001 when we had foot and mouth, when the Highland economy virtually collapsed, well, not just in the Highlands, but in the Lake District and all the tourism areas where people didn't go to the countryside and all of a sudden... Businesses were going bust left, right and centre. There was no compensation for these businesses. Mm-hmm. There was compensation for the farmers who lost their cattle and things, but the hotels and leisure industries, they, they lost big time. Now, they're very worried about these wind turbines because all these walkers and drivers who drive around Scotland looking at the beauty of it, the inherent naturalness of the, of the place and the wildness of the place, suddenly seeing a big industrial landscape. Wherever they look, there are these huge uh, turbines on, on top of the hills. Now, putting them on top of the hill, for, if you're a wind company, makes loads of sense because that's where it's windiest. But on top of the hill is where it's totally visible. So even when you're driving your car now, you're going to be able to see these things. The problem with the Dumner Glass one as well is that with Dumner Glass, the Cairngorm um, National Park actually complained and said, well, hang on a minute, even though it's the other side of the Monolia, we're going to be seeing this from our national park. So they complained and said, this really isn't on, you know, because it's going to detract from our national park, which is going to affect everyone's livelihood within the national park and the surrounding areas. 
Now, there's a wind farm coming, which is right next to King Craig, right along the A9. And the Cairngorm National Park boundary runs along the first ridge of the Monolia from the A9 going northwest. And there, there's three estates of all linked together near King Craig, and there's a plan for a super wind farm of about 50 to 60 turbines that's going to be literally a few steps over the boundary of the Cairngorm National Park, and that's going to be massive. So that will mean, for the, for the Monolia Mountains, in the north you'll have Far, which is already built, so there's about 45 turbines there. You'll have Dunnaglass, which is further slide, sliding down alongside Loch Ness. And then coming back towards the Cairngorm, right on the very boundary of the Cairngorm National Park, there'll be about 50, 60 turbines. Now, if you're driving up the A9 or you're driving up Loch Ness, all you're going to see is a ring of steel all the way mm. around mm. the Monolia. So, uh, Andy, come, come back in. Um, yeah, I think we have to distinguish a bit between um, the effect of uh, wind turbines in some places and the effect of wind turbines in pristine wild land. Um, last summer I was driving along one of the auto routes in France and all the way along it were, you know, that big flat stretch in the middle, all the way along it were a whole series of turbines um, next to um, you know, massive wheat fields sun was shining and these things were turning in the wind. It actually did look quite picturesque, you know, and you can think, well, but but that was, a, you know, an agro-industrial environment alongside of a motorway. Um, they don't look quite as romantic and pretty hmm. in absolute <laughs> pristine wild land. I've seen them in, and, in and uh, the de- California. The deba- the this debate has got to be more intelligible than just either you're pro-renewable or you're not. I mean, I'm... Uh, a very pro-renewable person. I happen to think we've prioritised a lot of our spending the wrong way. As Al said, mm. a lot of subsidies have gone into this where I'd, I'd much rather have seen them going into insulating homes yep, to to minimise consumption, which, of course, the, the, the environmental movement is absolutely very hot on, and they're right to do that. But we have to, we have to distinguish about the impact of these things, and it's different in different places. So, you know, you can drive down through Germany or through France, the Pyrenees, you can see wind farms, turbines on the on the scrubby foothills looking absolutely perfect and wonderful. You don't actually want to see them in the middle of the Alps, in the middle of the Pyrenees, yeah, exactly. in the middle of the Lake District. I mean, because the Lake District is more accessible and it's more chocolate boxy, of course, more people know it. So there'd be more, there'd be a, a lot of anger about doing that there. But um, it seems to me one of the challenges you've got in this very cynical um, political age of ours is that we're having to say to people you don't develop wild land because it's just not right to do it you know it's the old john muir maxim which i know you want to talk about later but it's that you leave things alone because the human race is sufficiently advanced enough to be able to make that choice to leave it alone you know and and that's actually one of the difficulties of this we've got to get back to that very idealistic very basic message and there's also this idea that you that you mentioned which is that you know if if the land's wild, then less people know about it. Therefore, it kind of it's harder to advocate for it. I guess, and is, is, if that's what you were saying. So, well, we are up against um, the notions of economy and economic policy and economic development, which we can touch on later. Um, but that is absolutely the sense that you know the Highlands of Scotland, a big massive area, not much of a population there. Does it really matter? You see, as well as that, that the wind energy companies are very clever because they're, they're not, they not only give the estates a load of money, but they also... It, these wind farms generate a huge amount of business rates as well for the local councils. And if you're, if you've, you're sitting there with a new, with a new, as, a, as a local council and you're struggling because you haven't got much of a population and you've got your schools falling to bits, and all of a sudden you've got the, you've got the possibility of another £200,000 a year coming in for business rates from a small wind farm, you think, yeah. that could just be it, that could do it. We could build our schools, we could fix our drainage, we could do this because we'll stick that wind farm on there, plan sorted. I mean, in Cambridgeshire at the moment, they're looking at just that thing because the councils are really struggling and they're looking at all their land saying, my word, this wind, wind energy, fantastic, we, we can solve our budget problems. And that's what the Highland economies, that's what the Highland councils are doing as well. And not only about business rates, but they also, the, the wind energy companies are quite clever because they, in effect, they buy off the local communities as well because there are grants to, to maintain little 
things for schools and things like that, and each community mm. gets given a grant. Mm. And so even at the sort of the individual level, you know, where little, little Johnny's school is going to get a new playground equipment or something like that because the wind energy company is funding it. And so they all think, well, this is great, this is absolutely marvellous, but they're not looking at the 25-year effect of having a power station on top of their hills. Economically for them, it's fantastic in the short term, but for tourism, it's an absolute nightmare. I mean, this is part of the general mess we have um, in this country in terms of our energy policy and, and energy consumption. And, you know, we're, we're going to be making the case, obviously, for protecting wildland for the sake of protecting wildland. But um, we've got ourselves into a state where we... We really don't have a cohesive, well-thought-out, balanced plan um, for renewable energy, for energy consumption. Because, you know, you, you start looking at energy consumption at the one end and you've got windmills in Scotland at the other end. It is part of a very complicated mix and, um, uh, you know, a kind of continuum of issues that, that we have to deal with in the round, really. You're absolutely right. And as well as that, Andy, they, when they go for planning for these wind farms, they're not looking... At a wind, they're not looking at the whole Monolia and, and the Northwest Highlands in the round. They're, they're, each planning application stands or falls on its own merits, and they go to each local council and the, and the Highland Council, and they say, "I want to put a wind farm here." The landowner has said yes. The community, the community councils are saying yeah because it's a great idea. So can we can we go for planning for this wind farm? They're not saying, "Oh, and by the way, just up the road we're going to put another one." And then, in about two or three years' time, we're going to come back, and all those places where we haven't got actually wind turbines, we're going to backfill them and put some more wind turbines in. That, because what they're doing is they're picking them off piecemeal mm. and then going back afterwards and then infilling, because in, they're saying, well, that area's already screwed. We've already got windmills all over it. You've only got to look at the sort of uh, the central belt uh, in, in Glasgow, and around Glasgow and Edinburgh, the hills around there now, and they're now infilling all those places where they've already around the Ockhills and places like that. They're now infilling it with more wind farms, and so once you agree to one wind farm, then basically the rest of the land around it is degraded in public perception. They say, well, we've already got one far- one wind farm, one more won't hurt. So that's that thin end of the wedge that you it were is. talking about, and also just that you know that Andy was saying. Um, it's to do with having a, a sort of a, a more macro, a more um, national, or even well, even the whole of a UK kind of type plan, rather than just allowing these companies to go in and, and sort of you know s- take snipes, take pot shots at individual estates. That's exactly what they're doing. Sort of taking advantage. What's going on then? I mean, you've mentioned that the we, you've, you've discussed that um, you know these things aren't actually as efficient as we're as we're being told, certainly by the energy companies. Um, we've You've looked a little bit at the at the economics of uh, of these things, and certainly there seems to be some definitely some uh, backsheesh, some backhanded sort of business going on, um, and and it's quite insidious as well that kind of whole sort of school playground for you know the green arm of the you know that's very very uh, cynical um, type camp- campaigning by by energy companies. Um, you've also mentioned that. The wildlife and and, and the raptor implications for the for the next door estate to Dunmaglass in particular. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you just before we kind of perhaps move on that, that there are other wind farms planned that I know of. Certainly Shetland, Turry, Lewis. Yep. Um, yep. Can you talk about a little bit about, about that? Well. Turi is a, a good example because they, they want to do a huge wind farm just off off coast because everyone's saying, well, let's not stick it on land, let's, let's stick it out in the sea. But when you take a look at the size of the wind farm they're proposing there and how close it is to the land, it's going to dwarf the island. And so they're fighting... They're fighting like hell, but the poor devils at Turi are thinking, well, hang on a minute, you know, because... Everyone's saying, we don't stick it on the hills, let's stick it out in sea. Stick it out at sea is fine. So Tari is now thinking, I've got a problem here, because everyone's saying, let's stick it out in the sea, and that's what we're doing, so how the hell can we argue? Mm -hmm. And and again, it's because they're picking everyone off piecemeal. There's no comprehensive policy to say where we're going to... You know, First of all, let's get to the bottom of the economics of the thing, Mm. and, and then let's get to the bottom of the economics of of what wildland actually means and actually what it, what value it has. And so all these places are, 
of, of fighting their own battle, and, and they all set up their own websites, and they're all they're brilliantly done. They all set up websites, they have big campaigns, and every now and then there's a success, and so everyone goes, hallelujah. But for every success, there's ten failures. And so these windmills are just spreading like absolute wildfire. wildfire. And it's, it's a nightmare because... No one is t- taking a look at the, at the wind energy as a whole and where it's going. Now, the people that are doing that are the John Muir Trust and uh, the uh, Mountaineering Council of Scotland plus the Ramblers, and there's a whole series of organisations, and they've all got together. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've had to separate themselves from, from, the, from the original organisation because people like the Greens and... Um, there's a lot of... of, of Greenpeace? Oh, yeah, well, Greenpeace, they're a nightmare because they just think wind energy is marvellous and, they, just, and they, they, they think Scotland's a dead loss anyway, so they've just given up on Scotland. But they, they've actually got together and said, look, you know, we've got to look at this as a whole, we've got to protect wild land. And there's a huge wild land campaign which has been fronted by John Muir Trust and, and the Mountaineering Council of Scotland with a whole raft of organisations as well behind them. And this is the first time that these organisations have got together to do it. But what's interesting this, this time as well is that um, the outdoor community as individuals are getting together and saying, you know, they're not part... Of, I'm, I'm, I'm not part of the John Muir Trust, and I feel, I feel rather guilty about that, but I just feel so strongly about this. I've started writing about it, and other bloggers have picked it up, other outdoor writers have picked it up, and also the, the Scottish National Press, the Scottish Weekly Papers... Uh, they've all picked it up as well, and they realise that there's this big groundswell that people don't want these mm. wind farms. Yeah. And now the John Muir Trust should be pushing at an open door, but the trouble is they're not, because it's that what they're up against is the Highland Council and the Scottish Parliament, because the Scottish Parliament want to be self-sufficient in wind energy and they want to be able to export energy. OK, so there's the rubbing. This is what I wanted to, to ask uh, as well to, to ask Andy about. I mean, what's, what's the political big picture here? I mean, why is Scotland in particular so focused on, on, on this form of energy, well, apart, you... apart from the fact that, that you know, it, it looks like it's quite windy up there, you know, which is slightly, a slightly patronising view, perhaps from, from, uh, from down south or, or maybe from, from across, the, mm-hmm. across the water? Well, you have two big pressures, really. I mean, the first is that, um, although we've been talking about this very sparsely populated area of wild land, of course, in the central belt of Scotland, you've got um, some of the lowest skills, lowest paid wages, and some of the worst poverty in the UK. So there's always a big focus on economic development and the need for jobs. Um, I was a local councillor in the Midlands for for 12 years, so I I know the power of that. You know, you're all the time looking at how you can generate economic development and jobs for for people. And the reality is that um, Britain has not made the most of uh, the new green industries, as it were. So there's a a kind of ambition um, to develop things um, in terms of jobs and employment. And, And you see this not just in terms of wind power, but if you look at the kind of uh, Donald Trump um, golf uh, <laughs> developments on the, on the East Coast, you know, and you look at the most absurd character, the most absurd scheme, and yet it's been almost impossible to deal with that simply because of the, the impact that will have in jobs and tourism in a very small area. So that's the, that's the first issue, um, that in Scotland, as in many of the ex-industrialised areas of the UK, you always have this pressure in terms of new industries and jobs. The second one, I think, is is much more political um, with a big P, and, and that's very much about, uh, I think, the aspirations of independence. And an independent Scotland will look to exploit the natural assets that it has, and one of those will be you know, the export of power. Now, whether mm. that's wind, whether that is based on hydroelectric, uh, and we haven't touched on that. I mean, the, some of the expansion of hydroelectricity in the Highlands has been mm. just as devastating in some ways. So, you know, there's a, kind of, uh, there's a kind of double whammy around economic development and the thinking about exporting power in a kind of independent or more independent Scottish sense. Um, Cameron McNeish, who um, is a one of Scotland's longest uh, campaigners and advocates for, for land and, and the outdoors, um, tells me that... He tells a story about um, having dinner with um, Alex Salmon some years ago before he became the first minister, 
and Salmond agreeing with him that the plight of the turbines was one of the biggest problems that Scotland had to face. Yet now in government, of course, you know, thinking about those economic arguments um, is driving people to see natural energy as one of their big exports. But, of course, the other thing he's got as well, poor old Mr Salmon, is he's got a minority government and he's propped up by the Green Party. And, of course, the Green Party thinks that wind energy is absolutely superb. And so to get... To keep power, Alex Salmond is hanging on with the, being propped up by the Green Party, and the Green Party says, we want wind. And so, basically, Alex given them wind. Well, I'm not quite as cynical as Al but, <laughs> <laughs> about that, but, I mean, I, I, I tend to think whoever was in power in, in Scotland would, would, would be looking to that. But certainly, if, if your aspiration is an independent Scotland that trades in its own right... Um, given you know what we've seen in terms of the collapse of the Irish economy and the mm-hmm. Icelandic economy over recent years, then you're going to have to look to exploit these kind of assets. And mm-hmm. I don't think we should underestimate that. Um, should you be developing this kind of sensitive policy on a kind of national, regional basis in the UK? Probably not. We should be looking at that across the whole of Britain. We should probably looking it, at it as a kind of European package as well. Um, but those are two big pictures that drive, I think, um, energy policy in Scotland. Well, I think we should get real and actually admit that wind energy is never going to be the solution, nor is hydropower because it takes so long and it's too expensive. Um, and the only real solution, and, and everyone, everyone's avoiding it, um, is nuclear. And, that's, right. and that's, the, that's the solution. And whenever you talk to any of the environmentalists, as much as they hate the problems with disposing of the nuclear nuclear waste nuclear is the answer it doesn't okay. add doesn't add to carbon emissions and it may be unpopular and i may be saying things that people really hate but it gets rid of the wind farms i can see from andy's face <laughs> that he may not share that opinion i think we're going to go for a, a, a quick music break and then we will move on perhaps to to forestry because obviously this is it's a shame we only have an hour i think we could probably do a, a several hour uh, radio show on this you're listening to the award-winning UK Business Podcaster of the Year. This is the Outdoor Station. OK, so on to uh, this forestry campaign. Now, uh, it's obviously the news has changed the last few days. It's been an amazing success. Um, it's been a governmental U-turn. I don't want to focus too much on that. There's no point in rubbing their faces in it, um, I don't think, um, although I'm tempted. But, um, Alan, what are your thoughts on this? What, this? The success of the campaign in particular? I thought it was great seeing a government minister coming to the dispatch box to say sorry. Um, you don't often get that. It has happened in the past, but it was really, really good. Um, the fact that public opinion has at last been looked at, weighed up and thought, hang on, we're too early into Parliament here, this is going to be too damaging. And they've actually realised that maybe this is a bad idea. Economically, it didn't stack up, and from a sociological point of view, it was just just rank. And when people like the Daily... Well, newspapers like the Daily Telegraph come in and line up with the opposition, then I think the government realises it's in trouble. But how did it get to that point? You know, how did we get half a million signatures so quickly... Um, campaigning against it. I mean, this is more Andy's field, really. Andy's field, really. Um, The the, the movement just happened. It just took off, didn't it, Andy? Yeah, I mean, this was um, a Facebook, Twitter-type campaign. There's no doubt about it. That's how the message spread very quickly. Um, You know, it's a kind of like... um, in some ways, it, it, it's it's as significant as what we've been seeing in the Mediterranean, in the Mediterranean Africa. Um, I don't want to be glib about that because what happened was very, very quickly. Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people around the country just sat and said, "This is wrong. This is this is not what we should be doing. It's not what we expect." So, therefore, you couldn't get into a technical argument about, well, actually, who owns the land is 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 not important, and we'll put um, safeguards into legislation to safeguard access. That wasn't what it was about. It was about people sitting there saying, "No." We don't expect these things to be flogged off for short-term financial gain into the private sector. And one of the challenges to those of us that are looking at um, this issue in Scotland and other areas of wilderness is to, is to get to the point where we have that same emotional reaction um, to, from people from there. But Facebook and Twitter and these kinds of new media 
things. Um, I don't think we quite understand the power of them yet. I mean, obviously, we can see them in the events of the last week. They're stunningly important. You know, the notion that you can um, uh, get rid of Gaddafi on, on, on the back of Facebook and Twitter is, is extraordinary. Um, I wonder, I was talking to a mate of mine last night who's a, a, a long-standing political watcher of Europe, and um, we were just musing on, the, on you know, if um, Twitter and Facebook it had existed in the run-up to the Iraq war in the, in the way they do now, would Blair have been able to go into Iraq? I mean, no. I don't know. It's very interesting. It changes the whole thing. So there is a medium there which you can be used to capture... Um, particularly very basic, very raw emotional issues. And I think one of the challenges for people like Alan and myself, although we come from very different you know, political views and spectrums, really, is how do, we, how do we connect that kind of basic raw emotional message about the protection of these very unique world environments? But there's no doubt that the new me- these new... Um, uh, medias uh, are give campaigners access to new tools. Um, whether we can organise enough to be able to exploit them is, a, is another question, but uh, very interesting. Before we move on to that, um, I suppose partly from my own point of view, I'm interested in keeping the forestry debate somewhat live, and, and obviously these tools are very important, but... Uh, they're, they've, the government have said that they're, they're going to set up a new body to, to look at how it might be better managed and um, uh, possibly take it somewhere else to how it's been in the past, um, running the Forestry Commission in the main. Um, what are your views on that, both of you? What, what do you feel? How could, it be, could it be managed differently? Could it be managed better than it has been? What's your view? Uh, I'm, I'm sure you can. Uh, but I think there's a difficulty with this. It, certainly if you, I mean, go back to Scotland again, um, you know, we had this massive explosion in the last century of uh, conifer plantations mm. for, for economic reasons. Um, and you compare those, the wonderful rich habitat of the natural Caledonian forest. And, and walking through a natural Caledonian forest is one of the great experiences of life. I mean, you know, you've, anybody that's trundered through the, you know, the conifer forests of Wales and got lost in them as I inevitably do, will know that they're very dead environments, there's not mm. much there, there's not much yeah, bird absolutely. life, there's not yeah. much life on the ground whereas you go through a native mixed woodland forest, they're extraordinarily rich and wonderful places so there is an argument about how you um, how you diversify um, forest stock and how you manage it of course, but, but, that lately, could, but lately the Forestry Commission have been doing really, really yeah, well with that and of course you can do that in the private sector, you can do it in the public sector, um I actually don't think the the public emotion was actually about that, which is where where I think Cameron doesn't maybe he's struggling with what's going. I, I think it's just a, a much more raw emotion thing about this is wrong. So there are very real arguments about how you do it. As as Al said, the Forestry Commission, um, the Woodland Trust, these kind of organisations are up there at the leading edge of doing this, um, and there is a debate about it. But actually, I don't think that's at the heart of this massive campaign. Again, I think it's a much more emotive issue about what people think is right. Yeah, right. I, I agree. And, and again, we're, we're, the government were looking at forests as an asset, mm. and that's something with a value to be sold. I mean, how, I, don't, I don't look at forests like that. I look at, I look at them a, a rather like a, I would look at a pavement or a roundabout. What's the payback on a roundabout? What's the payback on a pavement? You've just got to have them. You've got to have roundabouts or the place would grind to a halt. You've got to have pavements so that people can walk on them. You've, and I think you've got to have forests so that people can go and breathe and they can go and let off steam, they can go and feel nice and they feel out in the country and, and feel renewed and refreshed. It doesn't have a value. It's like a roundabout on a pavement. It doesn't have a value. And so just to give it a monetary value for the stock of timber that's on there and how, how, how often you can grow trees and cut them down and how much it costs to do them and distribute them and turn them into wood pulp, it doesn't matter. It has a far bigger value, and that's the value that wildland has as well. And you've mm. got to look at these places, and they don't have a commercial value. They have a, an intrinsic value to humanity. 
they have a, they have a social and a psychological value, yeah. don't they? I mean, yeah. there's, there's, no, there's no doubt. I mean, and that all I sounds think, rather woolly and a bit but, sort of open-toed but, sandal and beardy. But, but this but, is our challenge, isn't it? I mean, I've is. never I've never thought of you as a beardy, open-sandaled individual. Um, <laughs> it's amazing how these campaigns bring people together. Just, for the, just for the listener, uh, Alan yeah. is not wearing sandals. <laughs> Although he does have a beard. <laughs> but, but in general, I can vouch for the fact he's not, in general, a beardy, no, open, sandal kind of person. No, certainly not. Um, but, but I think that notion about you, we hold these things in trust um, for not only the, the wider generation, the wider country, we hold them in trust for future generations, and we do that because it's right to do it. And that was... Well, that is really the message of John Muir, who was a mm. great environmentalist, you know, born in Scotland, uh, moved out to the States, um, campaigned for years and years to get the first nature reserves or, or natural parks in the way we understand them today. And for him, the big issue was these things need to stay wild because it's right that we can do that. And it is... It's, it's that kind of basic emotive message that we've somehow got to articulate and to find power through. Do you know what I find amazing, as, as an aside, over here, you know, we, you and I talk about John Muir and what a god he is, and over in the States they really know he's mm. a god. Yeah, absolutely. And, but over here they're talking about making a John Muir trail, which is basically an industrialised urban walk through the central belt, through Glasgow to almost to Edinburgh or Falkirk and back, and you think... Dear God, is that really what John Muir stood for? Well, I don't think it is. John Muir stood for wild land, not a not an urban playground. And over here, you know, you go walk down Socky Hall Street and ask people who John Muir was, you probably get a complete blank. But it's it's the the, the whole culture we've got wrong. You know, we're we're becoming a Burger King, McDonald's, fast food society. Whereas in the States, they're realising, well, maybe a little bit too late because they've had far too many burgers and fast food, that actually wild land is important to them. And, you know, they've, they've set aside wilderness areas. And over here, we can go wherever we like. But over in the States, you need permits because they don't want to crowd mm, their wilderness yeah, areas. Absolutely. They're actually valuing their land now much more so than we are. And John Muir was a Scotsman. Mm. What are we doing? A great export. Um, but I am going to sort of try and... Uh, Pin you, pin you down a little bit more. It, if we're protecting this this land, wildland, be it forestry or be it the Monalia or be it um, Tiree, Shetland, um, who's who, under whose jurisdiction is it? Can we think of any other models? I mean, I'm thinking of just little bits and pieces I've read on the internet. So I think there's a different system in Finland. Um, I think there's a different system in France. You know, who's looking after it for us? If it's in trust, who, who who's doing that job? Well, there was a big issue about ownership, and um, one of the things about the John Muir Trust, uh, and we've mentioned them several times so far, is that they played an important role in partnership with others in allowing um, isolated rural communities in Scotland and in, in on the islands off the mainland to effectively um, new, use the new legislation to um, take over the land and their communities. And... Um, that's very powerful. I mean, a couple of summers ago, I, I spent some time in the Noidart, which is a, a wonderful wild area of Scotland, uh, and uh, with a really little tiny village called Inveree at the centre of it, which you can only real, really reach on foot or by boat. Well, the only reason Andy knows Inveree is it's got a pub. <laughs> it's it's the old pub. fort, which is very, very good. It's <laughs> yeah, the most yeah, yeah. remote pub most, in Britain. Yes, a very good pub. But, but what, what is very interesting about the nature of that community, a um, uh, company that effectively now owns and manages that area, is that they set out to develop a very sustainable model of a community and a very sustainable model of an economy. Now, that can happen because of the legislation that's been passed in Scotland and because we're talking about areas that don't have great utility value. Yeah. How do we take that across a wider swathe of the country? And we're not just talking about Scotland here. I think it probably does need us to sit down as, an, as, as a nation, as a government, and think, well... Um, these new communities, these new models of ownership have been very important and they've worked. How can we build on those? Because at the end of the day, you know, these communities will protect the land they're in. And I, I've heard similar arguments um, advocated from um, uh, people in, in Cumbria in the Lake District that actually, you know, there is a... the, the local 
local industry, the local community there, very much aware of the value of the protection of those upland um, environments. And um, how we protect them is an issue for national politics and national thinking. I agree, totally, yeah. Okay. Um, The other thing that uh, certainly that that Chris Townsend mentioned uh, during the previous shows is that his contention really seemed to be that there's a, I don't know, a, certainly a practical split now, but a philosophical split, really, between the Urban Green organisation, and I think, you know, Alan touched on this earlier, but like Friends of the Earth, Green Party, Greenpeace, who he argued uh, very uh, vehemently that we're overly concerned with energy management and and conservation-led groups like the JMT and, and Mountaineering Council of Scotland. Um do you guys feel that that, that split exists? Do you, do you agree? You, absolutely. You he, to, yeah. Chris is absolutely dead right. And, I mean, they really are the, the beardy, sandal-wearing brigade because they've got these great ideals, but they're not, they're not looking at their realities. I mean, when you take a look at these turbines and you take a look at how the, where, where you get the magnets from, that, that, which are a rare-earth mineral... Well, rare-earth minerals, they're not actually rare, but, the, but China's full of it. And what they do is they... I, mean, I don't usually read the Daily Mail, but a friend of mine sent me an article uh, which actually made very interesting reading. And they're basically despoiling huge areas of central China to dig up these rare-earth minerals to make these magnets. I think it's from neo- neodymium or something it's called, to make these magnets. And they're making huge toxic lakes and people are dying of cancers and getting deformities and all the rest of it. So... It's all very well for the Green Party and the Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace to say that wind energy is great, but they ought to take a look at the downside of the production of these materials. The, to the extraction make it. process. The extraction think, process yeah. is just appalling. Andy, Andy. Yeah, I've got a slightly different take on that than Al. Um, I, I've, I've worked with them in polit- political environments for quite a while in um, in England, and one of the things about um, Friends of the Earth and, uh, and other groups often is that they're, they're very pragmatic campaigners. So they have uh, uh, their big focus, which is climate change, and they're very pragmatic in how they deal with things. So, you know, if you're looking at the, um, the campaigns against the high-speed rail link at the moment, are, are, are environmentalists involved in that? As, as much about the economics of transport as it is about the protection of that environment. So, you know, they would argue that, well, OK, what's the value of knocking 15 minutes off the journey from London to Birmingham? Um, perhaps we should be, we should be uh, investing in local transport. Do we want to do something that sucks out the economic life of depressed areas even more by making them commuter belts to London? And, and they think in those kind of terms. And so maybe what Chris is saying is, is right, that there has been... A split between um, the rural communities and um, the urban ones. Now, if we were sitting talking to environmental campaigners about these issues now, they would understand what we're talking about. Um, And I think somehow that dialogue has got to be built up. And one of the reasons why I was so um, pleased to be invited to do this, along with Alan, is that neither of us are from Scotland. Um, Most of us, we earn our living, both of us, through... um, you know, urbanised, industrial society. Um, and we're sitting here in central London. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, I think, I think there is a, a role for people like us to play in supporting people like Chris Townsend. You know, Chris is a very lucky guy. He lives in one of the most beautiful areas of the country and, you know, he stumbles out of his house onto, onto jealous, a beautiful river not, and up no. the mountains. But, you know, so, you know, obviously he sees it and he lives it in a way that, that we can't do. But I think it's important that we get to a point where, you know, urbanites... I mean, I love the idea of living in total seclusion, well, for about half an hour, and then I get petrified about it because I'm an urban kind of character, really. And I think it's important that people like us are beginning to start and think about, actually, hold on a minute, it is a much more complicated issue. We have to defend these things because it's right to defend them. I find it surprising that I'm trying to organise a a bit of a protest in the Monolia. Yeah, talk talk to us about that. I mean, I was going to ask about about something else. I'll come to that in a second. But but what's going to go on in in Dunmagas in a couple of months? Speaking as a southern townie who who enjoys going to Scotland and the wild places, which I've been doing for for the last almost 20 years now on the TGO Challenge, 
uh, going across these wild places. I looked at it you know, the 12 years ago, seeing that first wind turbine going up, thinking, well, that was, you know, this is bad news. And now it, they're going to put a ring of steel all the way around this area, and that's just one area. And if I'm blunt, I think currently there's no way we're going to stop these things. They're going to go. They're just going to keep on building because they're picking off the areas one by one. And so the protest I'm organising is is one of despair, really, and I'm calling it Awake for the Wild because I really, really honestly believe that the monolayer are stuffed. And so what we're doing is a group of us uh, on the TGO Challenge, or during the TGO Challenge, uh, but a lot of other walkers as well, are going to be walking a coffin past the very windows of Sir Jack Haywood's house at Dunmaglass Lodge. We're going to walk it up and we're going to build it and leave the coffin on a funeral pyre at the point of the highest turbine on his land, which is about 700 metres up. 700 metres up is almost 2,500 feet up in the air, and the turbine's another 120 metres up in the air. And we're going to have a wake for the wild, and we've got um, a vicar and um, uh, um, um, Janet, who's um, a lay... Um, Lay preacher. Lay preacher, who's a secular preacher. And we're going to have a bit of a, a wake for the wild, or a little bit of a party. But I honestly believe that the wildland in Scotland is utterly, not to put too fine a point on it, can't say that on radio. No, you me? can't. Alan. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> Naked. Um, so can we make some... I mean, one of the things that occurs to me, speaking again as another uh, person who's from, from the city... Um, you know, I'm thinking of lots of lots of people that I know. I've got good friends who are involved in things like Transition Town. I've got another uh, uh, person I met in November who runs a little thing down in Kent called Touchwood Trees. Really, uh, it's privately owned, but she's got a great thing going on there, trying to build something. Can we make can we make these links better between the city and yeah. the country in order to to stop this? this process that, that Alan's talking yeah, about. Yeah, I think we can, but I think we have to rescue the notion of in, an environmental vision. Yeah, uh, I mean, I quite understandably mm. and quite rightly, people are focused on climate change and, and consumption and global warming, um, you know, because um, they are such big issues. And so, in a sense, in a transition town or a small place... Even uh, you know one of my favourite areas, my local hills are in South Shropshire, which has become a real area of um, green, sustainable um, development and communities, and that's wonderful. And that's all about that's all about one element of it. What we've lost is the focus on the stewardship of the environment for the sake of it. Now, one of the things that I think is useful about the new campaigning is it tends to work, particularly the Facebook, Twitter stuff. It tends to work around very basic core things um you know i grew up in the in the 60s in the early days of the environmentalism where you know we we knew it was wrong to do certain things because it was wrong to do it and we have to get back to that because this stuff just won't be around as alan said for the next generation or the generations to come behind that um once we've screwed it forever well i hope you enjoyed those discussions i think um, all three of them made some very valid points about uh, wind farms and stewardship of the countryside and obviously how it will affect us and the uh, people in the, in the uh, communities. Um, and it gives us uh, food for thought as we, as I say, approach the TGO Challenge in the next couple of weeks and we'll actually be walking uh, past some of these developments or through the areas where they're going to be uh, built. Uh, and um, yeah, it does make you think about exactly what impact it will be making on the environment as we go through. And certainly, if I get a chance uh, to speak to anybody either involved in the development or uh, near to the actual wind farms themselves, uh, I'll be certainly interested to hear um, the thoughts of people who live within the community on what impact uh, they are making or have made to their lives. Anyway, I must thank uh, David Linton for providing us with that information. We do actually have uh, some more interviews uh, from David, which are fascinating. Uh, he spent a long while with uh, Chris Townsend, uh, going for a walk with Chris Townsend, and they covered a humongous amount of uh, material uh, and discussions and topics, uh, discussing, obviously, a lot of Chris's interests, his activities, uh, some of his walks, and uh, his thoughts on conservation and so on as well. And they will be coming very, very soon. So my thanks to David for considering 
considering us and sending us the material. Obviously, thanks to Alan Sloman and Andy Howell, of course. Uh, you can track and, um, Alan Sloman and Andy down uh, just by Googling their names. Uh, Sloman is spelt S-L-O-M-A-N. And Andy Howell, just type in Andy Howell blog, and I'm sure you'll find um, his blog as well. And, of course, David's is selfpowered.blogspot.com. Well, the weather looks like it's going to be pretty promising now for the next few weeks, so keep our fingers crossed for our Scottish trip. And if you're heading off anywhere, I hope you have a great time as well. Okay, catch you next time. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear more from our extensive free library, please visit the website at theoutdoorstation.co.uk. You can now follow The Outdoor Station on Facebook, where we chat about each program we produce, answer questions, and discuss future productions. Why not join us there? This podcast is produced and hosted by theoutdoorstation.co.uk. 